come to, to give people freedom. And we talked about the concept of freedom, and we looked at, at Isaiah 61, and one of the phrases in Isaiah 61 is that I've come to take the prisoners into the light. So we're going to talk about light. So what I want you to do is grab your Bibles, open up to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 12 through 20. So the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 8. Verses 12 through 20. And if you're looking for that, I want to give you just a little bit of context of what's going on here. So it's not just jumping out at you out of nowhere. But Jesus is speaking to the, the crowds that have gathered at one of the, the feasts or the festivals. So if you go back to the Old Testament, God commanded the people to have three festivals a year. There was a, a festival that was the Passover festival, which celebrated literally the Passover lamb. Remember the lamb that was slain and the blood was put over the door so the angel of death would pass over, which became the culminating moment in the people being released from captivity in Egypt. So there was a Passover festival. There was a festival of weeks, or what we call Pentecost, which was a festival that celebrated Moses going up on the mountain and receiving the law. And then there was the Feast of Tents, Feast of Tabernacle, which is the feast that, that we're talking about right here. This is what's going on around there. And this was a, a, a celebration, if you will, of how God cared for the people over the 40 years that they wandered in the desert. So every year, all the people would come and they would celebrate these three feasts. And this is that third feast, the Feast of the Tabernacle, where Jesus is speaking. So, verse 12, it says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now the Pharisees challenged him, said, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from and where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true, and I am the one who testifies for myself, and my other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they ask him, well, where's your Father? He said, you don't know me or my Father, Jesus replied, because if you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Let me pray. Lord... Uh, and thank you for the message that you've given me today. I pray even now as, as we unpack this, as we talk about light and, and water, as we, as we dive into this message, I pray that it would not just be words, that it wouldn't just be something that tickles our ear and there's going to be some neat stuff to hear and talk about, but Lord, I pray that it would penetrate the deepest recesses of our hearts, that we would be transformed by the word of God. pray that the spirit of the Lord would speak to us, would bring healing where healing is necessary, will bring release where release is necessary. Lord, do what only you can do. May we leave this place different than we came because of the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage starts with the word. So keep it open. That's a, we're going to break this down quite a bit. But the passage starts with the words, when Jesus spoke again, which kind of creates a question in our minds, like what do they mean Jesus spoke again? To understand that, we got to go back to the last time Jesus spoke, so we know, well, what did he say before he spoke again? So, good news, you only got to turn back one chapter, so go to John, Gospel of John chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 37 and 38. I want you to see what Jesus said before he spoke again. So, verse 37, it says, On the last 
and greatest day of the festival, the, the Feast of the Tabernacle, Jesus stood up and he said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So it's the morning, and we know it's the morning, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But Jesus stands up and he says in a loud voice, If you're thirsty, come to me, and living waters will flow from you. So that's the morning. And then when he spoke again, we know because we can, we're going to see what, how this all plays out in the festival, it's now evening when he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. But I want to go back and I want to kind of unpack a little bit more. So, so we saw this last week. The more you know the context, if you remember we talk, when we talked about Isaiah, the more we understood the whole ashes and sackcloth concept, the more you understand what's going on, the richer and the more um, lively, if you will, the, the scriptures become. So we're going to take a little bit of time and we're going to try to understand and, and paint a picture in our own mind of what was going on at this festival, what was going on at this feast, because there's so much richness in what was being seven. And if you look at that passage, 737, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival. Well, if you were a first century reader, that would have evoked a, this picture in your mind. You would have known exactly what was going on. The problem is we don't. Because we don't really know what was going on at the festival. It's, it's long since a tradition that's passed from us. But the first century reader would have read that and had this, this amazing picture in their mind. So I'm going to kind of help paint the picture that will help you to understand all that's going on here. So it's the Feast of the Tabernacle. It's the celebration of, of God's people moving through the desert for 40 years. And so when they would celebrate this, they was kinda, there was a lot of things going on. But there was three main elements. And the first element is that, that the people would leave the comforts of their own home and they would stay in, in these little huts or booths, they would call them. Something similar to what you see here. So there would be three sides and a roof. They would construct these. And even if they lived in the, in the town, they would leave their home and stay in these booths that they would set up, these, these little huts. And they would put them on the roof of their house or they would put them in their yard or anywhere there was a courtyard in, in Jerusalem, they would build these huts or outside of the city gates, they would build these. And thousands of people would, would come for this festival and they would all stay in these huts. So you think of it as like this, this huge community camping trip. I don't know if you're a camper, but if you've ever camped with multiple families and you're all out and you're eating meals together and you're hanging out and you think about it, it's just it's a pretty cool thing. It actually sounds like a lot of fun to me. Like thousands of people all camping all out. And why would they do that? Because they wanted to remember that for 40 years, their ancestors had to live this way. It was a way of remembering, but it also was, was a way of building community. So there's all these tents. Just a, an amazing sight to see, if you will. Just something pretty, pretty amazing. And, and so they would take and they would celebrate this festival. And there were two elements of the festival that were particularly poignant. One was water and the other was light. So they would celebrate throughout this eight-day festival water and light. Okay, why water? Because water was what they needed to sustain themselves in the desert. Pretty important to have water. You're not going to last long if you don't have water. And then they would celebrate light because of the pillar of fire, which not only represented direction from God, but it represented the presence of God. So there was this, this ability for them to go back and remember all that God did by celebrating water and light. So what would happen is every single morning of the festival, the priests would lead this processional of people out of the temple down through the city to the Pool of Shalom. And you know, the Pool of Shalom was also called the Pool of Living Water. 
As a matter of fact, any water that was good for drink, any water that came out of a well that was, was pure and good for drinking, they would call in that day living water. In other words, it gives you life. It's not going to make you sick. So think about it. The, the priests are leaving the temple, and, and all of the, the instrument players, the musicians are following them, and then the singers are following them, and they, they lead this processional down to the pool of Shalom or the pool of living water, and they, the priests fill up their flasks with the water, right? And, and so they fill up the water, and while they're doing that, the people are singing from Isaiah 12, 3. They're singing these words, With joy we will draw water from the wells of salvation. Every one of the festivals, all three of the festivals, were a look back at what God had done, but they were also a look forward to what God was going to do. So they were singing songs of coming salvation. Not only did you save us in the desert, but you're going to save us when you send the Messiah. So they're looking back. And so then the priest would take this water, and they would lead the processional back into the temple, and they would pour the water onto the altar in the temple. And then the people would sing, save now, we beseech thee, Lord, save us now. So I want you to visualize all that because it's pretty, it's, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance going on. Well, this is the setting that Jesus stands up and he says, in a loud voice, the scriptures say, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. As I was putting this sermon together and I was sitting in my office and writing this, I was reminded at this moment of the words of C.S. Lewis when he said, speaking of Jesus, he said, he is either God or he is a madman. This is a wild claim. He is either the divine presence of God, part of the Trinity, or he is a raving lunatic. For 1,400 years, the people have been crying out, for God to come to save them. They're singing songs of salvation. Don't miss it. Jesus stands up and says, you don't have to wait anymore. I'm here. I'm the water you've been singing about. And people would have known that's what he was saying. That's why it says that people had to decide and people were polarized. So some people had to decide, well, is he the Christ or is he a lunatic? Sometimes we miss how, how poignant these moments are because we miss the tradition of what's going on. For 1,400 years, they're asking for something. And Jesus stands up and says, you don't have to ask anymore. I'm here. I'm the water that you've been celebrating all of these years. So in the morning, all that's going on with the water, okay? And then, and then it's, the evening comes, right? And this is where Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never, and I want you to see that word never, meaning never, walk in the darkness, but we'll have the light. So the second element of the festival is light. First was water, second was light. And the way they would remember water, the way they would celebrate water, is they would build these enormous candelabras, and they would put them in the courtyard. There were few, four of these candelabras. I think I have a picture of it that I can show you, but the, the, if you look back in history, these candelabras, are, this one isn't, but the ones that they would have in the temple were said to be 70 feet tall. Think about that for a minute. There are four candelabras, seven zero feet tall, seven stories tall. And the wicks of these candles were made from the worn-out undergarments of the priest, which I know there's a really good joke there somewhere, but I couldn't come up with one. And if I were teaching in junior high, I would just say underwear because then all the kids would go. 
something like that, right? But anyway, the worn-out undergarments of the priests become the wicks for these, these, these huge candelabras. And every night of the festival, they would light these candelabras. And if you read Jewish historians, they would say that when, when these were lit, there was no darkness in the city of Jerusalem. That it says every courtyard was lit by these candelabras. Now, we have to remember that when this is all going on. There's no electricity Right? They haven't even invented kerosene before that, which became a way of, of producing light. So this would have been a spectacle to see these amazing candelabras casting light all over the courtyard, all over the city. And, and here's this celebration night after night. Well, it's the last night of the festival, and Jesus is literally. So if you look at 8.18, which in, that we just read, it says, oh, sorry. It's not 8.18. I lost my place here. Give me one second. So 8.20, it says, He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offering were put. That's a description of an actual location in the temple. And guess where these four candelabras were? Right in that spot. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's standing under these candelabras. He's literally standing under this amazing spectacle of light. And he says the words, I am the light of the world. Jesus is saying again, I'm the light you've been waiting for. He's not beating around the bush. There's nothing hard to figure out in what he's saying. And when he says this, finally the religious leaders have sort of had enough. And so they begin what I think is a ridiculous conversation with him. Because they say, well, who's your witness? Now remember, Jesus just said, I'm the living water and I'm the light of the world. Like, who's going to be the witness to that? Right, like his friends are going to say, it's true, he really is living water and light of the world. And then they're all going to believe him, like, oh, okay, well, if you say he is, then for sure he is. But they're just trying to trick him. They're trying to, something to, to get this guy off. And they say, well, well, you don't have any witness. How can we believe you? And then he, he begins to talk about the fact that they're seeing everything in human terms. But he makes it absolutely clear, I do have a witness, and the witness is my father who sent me. Between the two of us, there are two witnesses. What I'm saying to you is true. So in John 18 says, I'm the one that testifies for myself. My other witness is my father who sent me. What he's really saying is God sent me to fulfill all of these promises of scripture. When you celebrate all these festivals, I'm the fulfillment of the festival. So when they celebrated the Passover festival, they were celebrating the lamb that was slain to free them from Egypt and the lamb that would come to free them from their sins, to free them from their captivity. And Jesus says, I'm the lamb that was slain. And when in, in the, the feast of, 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 uh, uh, of the, sorry, the feast of weeks, when they went up on the mountain to get the law, you know what Jesus said? I came to fulfill the law. So they would celebrate that feast. And here's the feast of water and the feast of light. And Jesus says, I'm the water, I'm the light that you've been celebrating. A pretty, uh, could have been perceived audacious claim for Jesus. I'm the one who testifies for myself, and my witness is the Father who sent me. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see Jesus replacing all of the traditions of the festival. And here he stands saying, I am the light of the world. So if Jesus is the light of the world, what difference does it make to you and I? What is the implications for you and me, that Jesus is the light of the world. Or another way of saying it is, so what? What difference does it make? 
And in order to grasp how powerful this proclamation is, we got to understand, well, what is light represented in Scripture? How does the Scriptures represent light? And so we're going to take a little bit, and we're going to look back at Scriptures and see, well, well, what is light? So the first thing light represents is God's presence. So if you remember, there was this, this prayer that the priests were, were asked to pray over people. They called it the priestly prayer. It's in Numbers 624, and it says, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he, the Lord make his face to shine on you. So there's this picture of light in there, and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. We also see in Psalms 4, uh, 6 and 7, it says, May the Lord... Many of the Lord are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy. The imagery here is so profound. Because this idea of God turning his face towards us is a fatherly blessing. It's not a blessing of, of, of radiance. It's actually this picture of your heavenly father setting his gaze on you. It's a picture of your dad seeing you, but taking delight in you. And the only way I can, I can imagine this is with my own kids. Those times when you're watching your kid and you just have a, a smile from, from ear to ear, and you're just, it's such joy to see them doing what they're doing. And sometimes they're not really doing anything. Maybe they're just drawing or, or talking or, or whatever it is. And you look at them, and, and there's this father's gaze. And, and the... the the picture here is that God would turn his face towards you, that he would look at you, that he would see you, that he would take delight in you, that that's the blessing. And you know what Jesus says? I came so that your father's face would turn towards you. I came so that you would experience the presence of God in your life in an amazing sort of way. The other thing we see in the scriptures is that light represents God's salvation. So Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold. In other words, he protects me. And, and whom shall I be afraid? Or Psalm 44, the psalmist is talking about how we can't do anything in our own strength. And he says it's not by the sword that they won the land. It's not by their arm or the strength of their, their arms that they bring victory. It was your right hand. It was your arm. And the light of your face, for you love them. Jesus is standing in the temple and he's saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm the one that brings the presence of God. I'm the one that brings the salvation of God, salvation from death, salvation from sin, salvation from depression, salvation from worry, salvation from anxiety, salvation from physical sickness. I'm the one that brings all of that because I am the light of the world. So the other thing we see in, in Scripture is that light represents God's revelation. So a familiar passage to many of us is Psalm 119 when it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light on my path, right? So, so Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's going to light your way. I'm going to show you the way to go. I come into your life as the presence of God. I bring salvation in your life, but then I give you revelation in your life so you know the way to go, the way to walk with me. As a matter of fact, we know Jesus is the revelation of God and he's the light of the world because he even says, if you see me, you see the Father that sent me. Or if you look at the passage we studied today, 8.19 says what? It says, you don't know me or the Father, but if you knew me, you would know the Father also. Why? Because I am the revelation of God. I'm the light of the world. I am your salvation. I am the light of the world. So Jesus stands up and he proclaims in the temple, these amazing words, I am the presence of God, I am the salvation of God, I am the revelation of God. He's saying in me there's no darkness. But the problem is, we still hide. 
The problem is we still put up partitions in our lives and try to hide from God, and we do hide from one another. We erect curtains in our lives, and we don't receive all of what God has for us when he says, I'm the light of the world. We refuse to let the light in to places that God wants to shine, this liberating freedom sort of light. This is the power of honest dialogue. This is the power of confession. So if you did your study or you're about to do your study, you're also going to do a, a word study on confession, and you're going to discover, I don't want to give it away, but you're going to discover that confession is more than just talking about your sins. It's just being honest. You know, you can confess love to one another. You can confess that you're hurt. You can confess all kinds of things. But really, confession is just another word for being honest with one another. So if there's one thing, if, if somebody were to say to me, what do you want to come out of the Church Without Curtain study? If there was one overarching theme that, that I would love for people to hold on to is the fact that, that there really are two forces in the world. There really is good and there really is evil. That evil really does exist, that Satan is real and he really is a roaring lion seeking to devour you. He desires to tear you up. And the truth of the matter is, when you isolate yourself, when you hide from others, when you try to hide from God, when you become self-dependent, when you put on a false self, you give the enemy, you give that roaring lion a place to come and destroy you. There are two forces in the world. One is evil and one is good. And Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world and you never have to be in darkness again. He, he, he proclaims victory over this darkness. John, uh, 1 John 4, 4 says, You do, dear children, are from God and, and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The reason this passage works so well here is because you can see the two forces, the one who is in you and the one who is in the world. But you can also see who holds the victory the one who is in you. Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. You have victory over whatever darkness exists in your life. We sing regularly a song here by Chris Tomlin, and he says these words. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, and trembles at his voice. It trembles at his voice. You know, Satan is afraid of the light. He trembles at the thought of light. I love 1 John 4.4. I love these lyrics because... It's a picture of the victory that we have. Evil is real, but so is God, and God has given us victory. The problem is, we still allow places in our hearts to be secret. We isolate ourselves, and we give Satan permission. Get that? We give him permission to wreak havoc in our lives. We give him a place to attack us. So I told you last week, Meg and I have been watching this uh, World War II documentary, and two things that are obvious. One is I didn't pay attention in history class, because I'm watching, I'm like, really? I didn't know that. Really? Japan bombed Pearl Harbor? Who knew? No, I knew that one. But a lot of the other stuff, I, I didn't know. But if you watch this, this, this documentary, it seems like every battle is fought on a beach. Over and over, there is an invasion on a beach, whether it's an island or a continent. Think, you know, Europe. Right? There was, a, there was a big invasion on the beach. So what's the deal here? Why the beach? Well, because there's this, there's this military term they kept talking about, like we had to take the beachhead. 
Well, why'd they have to take the beachhead? Because that was the place where the enemy or the, the allied forces could advance against the, 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 the ruling party that was there. That's the only way they could get onto the island. That's the only way that they could, they could march in. So there's this picture of, of having to take the beachhead so that they could so they could move in and they could do what they needed to do. And I'm talking about this with Meg, and she watched the documentary with me, so she should know the answer to this. But she said, is a beachhead a good thing or a bad thing? I said, well, it depends on who's attacking, right? I mean, if the bad guys are coming and they have a beachhead, it's a bad thing. If the good guys are coming, it's a, it's a good thing. But this idea that I want you to picture in your mind is that when we hide, when we put up curtains, we actually give Satan a beachhead. We actually say, okay, if you want a safe place to land and attack me, this is it. Bring your forces. This is where you can bring in your reinforcements. This is where you can come. That's the idea of strongholds. That's the idea. That, all that term that Paul uses in scriptures, those are all military terms. He's saying don't give Satan a beachhead. Don't give them a, him a place to, to attack you. This is what destroys marriages. This is what breaks up friendships. This is what splits churches. This is what cripples ministries. This is what dulls the radiant light that God has poured into us. And the only solution is the light of the world. The only solution is the fact that we have already overcome. So we bring Jesus to play into the, into the whole mix. We say, Jesus, you need to protect. And Jesus becomes our stronghold, a military turn, against the beachhead where Satan wants to advance and wreak havoc in our lives. So unforgiveness in our lives is a beachhead. Worry is a beachhead. Gossip is a beachhead. Sin is a beachhead. You cannot play around with sin without saying, okay, Satan, if you want a place to attack me, here it is. I'm going to open the door, and you can come as much as you want, but, but this is just, I'm just going to let it happen. And the solution to any beachhead is light. So we bring the light of God into it, and the scriptures tell us darkness has to flee. So I've had an interesting week, and Part of me doesn't like preaching because this happens all the time. God always wants to make me live into what I'm preaching. So um, I had a, a pretty hurtful thing happen this week. Um, I felt like someone very dear to me betrayed me um, in a deep place, and it, it was very, very heartbreaking. Um, there were a few tears over it. Um, but I felt like God kept taking me back to this sermon. And he kept saying to me, so are you going to bring light into this, or aren't you? I know you're hurt but are you going to become embittered? I know you're, you're hurt, but are you going to extend forgiveness? I know it hurts, Doug, but are you going to bring the light into it? Because what I really wanted to do was just rage a little. I wanted my own way. You see, if I don't respond the right way, I give Satan a beachhead. If I respond in bitterness and anger and rage, then I say, it's okay, Satan. Here's a place where you can come and you can attack me. And you know what? Taking it back to God, it still hurt. It still hurts. But there's something different when we expose that hurt to the light of God, when we confess back to God, God, I, I didn't sin. This isn't a confession of sin. The confession is, God, this really hurts. Would you meet me in my hurting? And you know what he does? He meets me. And he ministers to me, and he allows me to navigate that through that with the grace of God, and then I can extend grace to somebody else. And as I prayed about this, all I felt like God was saying is just bless them. Just bless them. But that's not an easy thing to do when somebody hurts you, is it? 
But God is calling us to that, not to give evil a, a beachhead. He wants us to overcome. So Jesus stands up in our passage today and he declares, I am the light of the world. I have come to utterly and absolutely destroy the things of darkness. You never have to walk in darkness again. So we're going to do something different. John's going to come up and he's going to play. Um, but we're going to do something called a responsive reading. Now, if you grew up in any church tradition, you've probably done a responsive reading. I don't know that, um, I don't know that I've ever done one here at Grace. We may have at some point or another. But really a responsive reading is this. I'm going to read a phrase, and then I want you to read back a phrase that follows. And we put the responsive reading in your bulletin, but we're going to turn the lights down, so you don't need to look for it in your bulletin. And we're going to put the response on the screen. So I'll read a phrase, and I will pause, and then I want us all to read together the words on the screen. Then I'll read a phrase, and we'll go through this entire thing this way. And here's what the power of a responsive reading is. It sets some words in motion in our lives so that when something comes along in your life, hurt, temptation, you have some words to apply to it. You have some words that have said it. So it's a way for you to remember. It's a way for you to apply. It's a way for you to hold on to the way to bring everything we talked about today into motion. So a responsive reading. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. I am still confident of this. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. When I am afraid, I will remember. When I am tempted, I will remember. When I am feeling lonely, I will remember. When I am feeling inadequate, I will remember. 